morning, everyone. Good to see you. For those of you who I haven't met, uh, my name is Josiah. I'm the pastoral intern here. And I know it's weird to not see Aaron up here this morning. Um, I don't have any firefighting stories for you, and I don't have any John Stott quotes in my sermon today. But other than that, um, I think it's going to be a good morning. I think uh, this message is something that we all really, really need to be reminded of. I know that I need a reminder. I need to be reminded of this constantly. So um, open up your Bibles if you have them to 1 Corinthians 1.18. And while you do that, I'd like to tell you a story about my old neighbor, Ian. So Ian um, was a few years older than me, but he was about 20 years old at the time. He was working at Chrysler all summer, and he made good money. He worked a lot of hours, and he saved up and bought a car. And he used this car to do what college guys do, drive to work, drive to school, drive to hang out with his friends, and all that. And as winter began to approach, a light came on in his dashboard, and he learned that he needed to top off the antifreeze on his car. And so... He didn't know a whole lot about car maintenance. Uh, his dad knew a lot. But he didn't really want to ask his dad questions all the time. And, and you know. So anyways, he, he pulled into his driveway. Um, and he opened up the garage door. And he began to look for a bottle of antifreeze in his, in his dad's garage somewhere. And he looked and he looked. And he looked and he looked and he looked. And he couldn't find any. And so he decided to guess. And he grabbed this bottle of blue liquid off the shelf and popped the hood and poured it into the antifreeze compartment in his, under his, on, in his car, and then went to sleep and kind of forgot about it. And then that night, there was a cold snap, and it got really cold that night. It dropped below zero, and when he went out to go to school or work the next morning, he tar- started turning on his car, and he heard that awful sound where the starter's whirring and nothing else is happening. And he tried starting it a few more times. Nothing happens. So he's like, oh, okay. He reluctantly goes and wakes his dad up brings his dad outside and his dad begins looking around and he realizes that the blue liquid that Ian had put in his car was not antifreeze and it didn't actually belong anywhere near a car. It was Windex. And so overnight, he'd f- the, all the hoses in his car froze and snapped open and popped and th- there was no way this car was running that morning or anytime soon. And so he'd filled his car up with this fluid that was incompatible. It didn't work. It wasn't supposed to be there. And it took up space. It looked colorful and bright, even though antifreeze isn't blue. And, but it didn't work. And I think a lot of times we tend to do similar things with our souls and with our churches. We like to fill up our lives with this stuff that takes up space and it takes up time. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really do anything. And actually, sometimes it can be destructive. Uh, whether that's, uh, we have... Everyone has their vices. It could be alcohol. Um, it could be substance abuse. It could be uh, this prideful spirit that likes to uh, take root in your soul. Or maybe it could just be the long to-do list of the thousand and one things that you need to get done that day. And uh, when, when these things begin to take up space in our lives, when we fill up our church with lots of flashy lights and smoke machines and, and lots of cool songs, but we don't actually have anything of substance in them. It may look good on the outside like Ian's car, but on the inside, the internal workings are completely frozen and they're useless. And so I've titled this sermon, We Are Gospel Driven. Uh, Gospel driven is the first of four values that we have at Heritage Grace. The other values are uh, we're relational, 
We are multipliers and we're contributors. And so myself and James Bast, who's the outreach pastor at our mother church, Grandview, are going to be preaching through this We Are series intermittently over the next couple months on our values as a church. And so our first value is gospel-driven. And what this means is that everything we do, everything that we say, everything that we preach, every song that we sing, every word that comes on the slides needs to be rooted in the gospel. It needs to be rooted in Jesus Christ and the good news about him. And so let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. And we'll see what the Bible has to say to us about the gospel and who we are as a church. So would you read with me? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So here's the big idea. A gospel-driven church is powered by Christ alone. A gospel-driven church is powered by Christ alone. Everything that we do is fueled by Christ and the gospel. Let's flesh that out a little bit more. So if you look back at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul starts off by saying, For the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. So the word of the cross. What is the, what's the word of the cross? What is that? It's the message of the gospel. It's the, it's the good news that, uh, that God created a perfect universe and humanity was the pinnacle of his creation. He created the birds and the, tr- and the trees and, and the plants and the animals and all of that, but humans were the pinnacle of c- his creation. And Adam, the first man... 
messed up and he sinned by disobeying God's direct commands. As a result of this, Adam's sin entered the world and began to destroy and wreak havoc on everything you can imagine. Sin affects absolutely everything from the way nature works um, to the way we interact with each other. And mostly, most of all, it affects us and it destroys us. And someday we will die because of our sin. But God, being a loving and a holy God, decided that he wouldn't just let sin roam freely forever. So one day, about 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, Jesus, to the earth to live the perfect life that we could never live and die the death that we deserve to die so that the seemingly insurmountable price of sin could be paid. And Jesus died a horrible, painful, slow death on the cross for you and I. And when he died, he paid the punishment that sin demanded. But three days later, Jesus rose from his grave claiming final victory over the most final thing in the universe. And when Jesus arose, he made a way for you and for me to join in his victory over death and be with him forever in paradise. All that we have to do to accept the gift that Jesus gives us freely is to believe that he is God, that he died for our sins, he died the death that we deserve, to turn from our sin and commit to following the way of Jesus. And that's the word of the cross. That's the word of the cross that Paul is talking about here. So here's my first point. A gospel-driven church preaches Christ. We preach the word of the cross and just to clarify that when I say preaching, when I say a gospel-driven church preaches Christ, I mean both here on a Sunday morning, but also each of us need to be doing this throughout our lives, throughout the week, as we go to the park, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we're at the grocery store, as we're interacting with people online, we need to be preaching Christ as a collective whole, not, not just a few different people up here on this portable stage from 10.30 to 11 on Sunday morning. And so what Paul is saying here in these verses is that this message sounds pretty crazy to most people. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So most people in Waterloo Region right now, if you walked up to them on the street and you told them that you believe that a guy 2,000 years ago is God, that he died, that he rose from the dead, and that that affects you today, most people would think that's a pretty crazy message to tell people. It sounds foolish. And that's why he says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to, to the vast majority of the world. It sounds ridiculous. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's read on verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and, a folly, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Take note of that phrase, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he's kind of talking about the same thing here. He's talking about how the wisdom of God seems ridiculous to the vast majority of the world. In this case, though, in, uh, in verse 21 it says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So even though this message that I'm talking about right now, that we are called to go out and, and preach to people that we meet, even though it sounds crazy and ridiculous and you might look kind of weird for it, it pleases God when we preach this ridiculous message to people because they will be saved by it. What seems foolish or weird or confusing at first to people slowly begins to make more sense. And they believe that message and they're saved. And so it pleases God when we do this. Sharing the gospel is pleasing to God. It brings honor and glory to him when we go into our neighborhoods, when we go into our workplaces, when we go into our family gatherings and our schools and share the message of Jesus despite looking ridiculous for it. And all that is to say that a gospel-driven church preaches Christ. We need to be preaching Christ all the time, everywhere, no matter the circumstances. And when you do this, um, it's a powerful, it's a life-changing message. It's transformative, both for the people that you are preaching it to and for yourself to hear it over and over again. And when you do this, because as Christians we have to, I'd uh, just encourage you to take comfort in the last verse there that I just read. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God on his worst day, and not that he has bad days, but if he did, on his absolute worst day, is infinitely better than anyone you could meet, anyone that you could talk to about this. Infinitely stronger and wiser than anyone you tell this to. And so take message that you're sharing, or take comfort that you're sharing the message of a God like that. Right now, though, you might be thinking to yourself that this seems like a little bit out of your wheelhouse. It might be a little bit above your pay, pay grade. This whole preaching thing's kind of tough. I was nervous for the whole week leading up to this. It's tough here, and it's even more tough when, it's, when you're saying it to people that think you're weird for it. I can't do that. I'm just a regular guy. I'm just a regular girl. I don't know how to do that. And if you feel like Preaching Christ everywhere, all the time, no matter what, seems a little bit intimidating to you, good. That's exactly where God expects you to be, and this leads to our second point. A gospel-driven church boasts in Christ. If we read on in the next few verses, we see Paul address this very issue. So verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not many of you were Elon Musk's and Mark Zuckerberg's. Not many of you were members of the royal family. You weren't special people. And Paul isn't telling the Corinthian church to preach this message because they're some dream team or some powerhouse of just talented preachers. Actually, if you read the rest of the book, you'll see they're quite the opposite of that. Um, they're a messy gaggle of ordinary people. They were the plumbers and electricians of that day, the students, the stay-at-home parents, the 
the accountants, the firefighters, the retail workers. They were just regular people. But, but read what he says next. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose what is weak and low and foolish and despised in the eyes of everyone else to bring to nothing things that are. Actually, I like the NLT's translation the best here. It says, to bring to nothing what the world considers important. So what do you consider important? What are the things in your life that you like to think about that you spend a lot of time mulling over or or focusing on or trying to achieve throughout your week? Is it a promotion at work? Is it having the most curated Instagram feed? Is it making a lot of money? Is it working for the weekend and just can't wait to get home and turn Netflix on and just watch that from 6 o'clock after dinner until you go to bed? What do you consider important? I'll tell you what, most of the things that we consider important are not the things that God considers important. And God chose what is foolish and weak and despised in the world to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And you and I, you and I are the foolish, weak, inconsequential choices. We don't really have what it takes to do this. We don't, we just don't. But if we look through the scope of Scripture, we see that time and time again, God chooses the person that nobody else would. He chooses Abraham, an idol-worshipping pagan, to become the father of his chosen people. He chooses Rahab, a prostitute, to open the gate to the promised land. He chooses Gideon, a shaky-legged, nervous wimp, to lead an army to victory over Israel's enemies. And he chooses David, the youngest shepherd son of a shepherd, to take down the giant, and he makes him a king. And he chooses a young engaged girl named Mary to bear the savior of the world. God is not in the habit of choosing all-star first round draft picks to accomplish his mission. He loves using regular, unremarkable, normal people for his plan so much, in fact, that he became one. He sent his son, just think about this, he sent his son to earth, the God of the universe sent his son to earth, not as the firstborn son of Caesar, which he could have done, not as some highfalutin politician, not as the son of the high priest of, in, in Judea, but he sent him as the son of a carpenter. And he was born in a dirty, smelly feeding trough surrounded by animals. God chooses regular, insignificant, unimportant people like you and I to change the world. And you know why? Because of what it says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 
It's not about us. God makes sure that we know that. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, this, this job that we have of preaching Christ every single day, everywhere we go, no matter what, is hard. And we all fail at it a lot. It's way, way beyond our abilities. And so we can't take credit for planting this church. We can't take credit for how many people we baptize here in the future or how many people show up next week even. We can't take credit in any of that. We can't boast in ourselves because we're regular people and we need Christ just as much as the person standing next to us. We need Christ and he's our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption as verse 30 says. And so that's why a gospel-driven church boasts in Christ because we don't have what it takes. So, so far, we've seen Paul talk about how a gospel-driven church preaches Christ all the time, everywhere, even if they look foolish for it. A gospel-driven church boasts in Christ because we don't have what it takes to do that all the time in and of ourselves. And third, if we read on, we'll see that a gospel-driven church is in Christ. This might be kind of maybe a weird, vague phrase, but it's an important theological concept that we understand, so let's read on. Strap on your seatbelts because it might get a little bit uh, tedious here. But in these verses, in in, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul's referring back to five years earlier when he planted the church in Corinth as an example of everything he's just been talking about. And so let's read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he decides to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A gospel-driven church preaches Christ. Then he says, this message wasn't in words of wisdom, in verse 4, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. A gospel-driven church boasts in Christ. And verse 5 is what I believe is kind of the grand slam of all that we've been studying this morning. This is like the summative statement, the most important piece of the puzzle. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if you remember, I told you to make just a mental note about uh, Christ, or Paul calling Christ the power of God. Uh, let's just take a quick peek back at verse 24. It says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So verse 24, he says that he calls Christ, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. In, in 2 verse 5, we see the exact same phrase, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So here we see here that Uh, he's telling them to not put their faith in the world's wisdom, not to put their faith in those, all the philosophies that are flying around right now, but in the power of God. And and in verse 24, 
Um, he calls Christ the power of God. So, if I may be so bold, you could translate that as, or think about that as, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in Christ. Another thing uh, that I'd like to point out here is that word rest. Your, your translation might have that same phrase or it might have something that says uh, trust in the, in the wisdom of man or, or based on the wisdom of man. But in the original text in the Greek, that word actually isn't there at all. And so most literally, you could read it as so that your faith might not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Or that your faith might not be in the wisdom of man, but in Christ. And so, so what does that mean to, to be in Christ? It's, it's a phrase that I think sometimes is thrown around quite a lot. It, we see it all throughout Scripture. But what does, what does being in Christ actually mean? It's, uh, it, it's really important that we understand this. Being in Christ is a lot more than just a, a fun, cool phrase to throw around at church. It's, it's, our, it's our identity. It's who we are as the church. And it actually refers to several kind of different facets of who you are as an individual and who we are as the church as a whole. So moving quickly, uh, I'm just going to briefly give an overview of, of several times that it talks about being in Christ in the New Testament and, uh, and, and what that means. So in Ephesians 1.4, says that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So that means that before the beginning of time, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, if you are saved and born again, before the beginning of time, God chose to adopt you as his child because of the sacrificial blood of Christ. Secondly, in, ver- in uh, Romans 5.19, it says that Christ's actions during his life on earth are counted as ours. This means that Christ lived the perfect, sinless life that you never could, and God views your life because of the gospel as sinless as Christ's is. Your sins are covered by by Jesus, and so you are in Christ and made sinless because of him. Colossians 2.12 and 1 John 5.11, it says, We are crucified and raised to new life in Christ. That means that the sinner you once were is dead crucified to that cross with Jesus, and you have been given a new life in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and John 15, 5, it says that everything we do can be done in Christ. Every work that we do, everything that we say, this job of preaching Christ is, is powered by him, and so we are in Christ in our actions and our work for him. And finally, as a church, we are one body in Christ. Romans 12, 5 and other passages, we aren't uh, just a bunch of individuals sitting here together and then we go off and we do our own thing. That's not the biblical picture of what the church is. We have all together been made one body in Christ Jesus. And so that means that you and I all share this unbreakable bond as a church and we are one whole body believers united in Christ. And I know that was a lot, so uh, if you want those passages, I can shoot me an email and I can send them to you later. But 
just so that you, so you see that it's not just a cool phrase, it's not just something that we say, it, it, it's, a, it's an identity issue, it's who we are as individuals saved by Christ and as a church. Because of Jesus, Jesus you are chosen, you are forgiven, you are justified, you are resurrected, you are sanctified and united in Jesus. A gospel-driven church is in Christ. And so looking at the flow of this passage this morning, we've seen that there are certain things that a gospel-driven church is called to do. We're called to preach Christ. We're called to boast in him because we don't have what it takes. So there's these things that we need to do, but, but even deeper down, a gospel-driven church is in Christ, and it's who you are. It's who we are as the church. Our identity is in Christ. It's not in a cool HGC logo. It's not in being a Kitchener church. It's not in being a church plant. It's about being a gospel-driven church. It's about being a church powered by Christ. And so, what does this actually mean? Uh, we're supposed to share the gospel. I know that. We've heard, heard it a thousand times. We're supposed to give credit to Jesus. Okay. We're in Christ. That's our identity. Okay. But a few things that we need to cre- keep in mind a little bit more practically are that if we value being a gospel-driven church, we all have a part to play in it. So by definition, since we are united in Christ, by definition, as a church, we all take part in that. That means that if one of us is slacking off in one of these areas, if one of us is, is letting the person next to us do the work and we're kind of riding on their coattails, that means that we're not a gospel-driven church, really. We've all got a part to play in this. Your actions affect me and mine affect you because of our identity in Christ. And so if we're not all working together to preach Christ into our daily lives, we're not a gospel-driven church. There's a bunch of people who like to use the cool phrase gospel-driven, but we actually are more interested in letting the person next to us uh, do the work. It just doesn't work that way. We share this collective responsibility to share Christ, to preach Christ, to boast in Christ, and to live in light of our identity in Him. And so we need to be, also as a collective whole, holding one another accountable to those issues. If you're in a community group right now, that's a great avenue for people to be holding you accountable on these issues. And if, if one of us is kind of slacking off and, and for no good reason, uh, there need to be some conversations that happen. A lot of times... Our default is to operate out of like a, a fear or uh, a fear of this, the ridicule or the awkward moments that you might have when you're, when you're talking about Jesus with someone. Uh, but maybe there's, there's laziness that's just holding you back. Maybe there's just so much packed into your weekly schedule right now that you can't even imagine uh, adding this, this huge task onto your plate. Whatever it is, though, we need to hold each other accountable to this. We need to be praying for one another. We need to encourage one another to pursue these things, to preach the gospel, not only to the world, but to ourselves and to each other. We need to be reminded often of this calling. We need to be reminded often that we don't have what it takes, that we need to rely on Jesus for, for, this, for the energy, the strength to carry on. And we can't 
go on living like this is just all up to us. Like, we got this. We got this figured out. I don't need anyone. We, we can't do that. First of all, it doesn't work. And second of all, it's sinful. We need to be reminded of the beautiful and mysterious truth of Christ. We've been given a new identity, a new way of life. And these things quickly slip our minds. We can get focused on the day-to-day grind of waking up and going to work and cooking dinner and taking care of the kids or picking them up from school and driving them to volleyball practice, paying the bills, managing family conflict, stressing about if there's going to be another lockdown. All these things take up space in our lives. They take up space so quickly that we often forget about the most important things. We often forget who we are in Christ and what we're called to do to preach Christ and to boast in him. And so if you've forgotten that this week, here's your reminder for today. You are the church. And so you're called to preach the gospel. And you are in Christ. You are chosen as his child. You are rescued from sin by his grace. And you are called out of your sin to, a, to be adopted as his child. A holy family adopted by the Father missionaries sent by the Holy Spirit and disciples following the way of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we just want to acknowledge uh, this morning that you are big and that we are small. And Lord, we want to thank you for this passage, for the fact that even though we are called to do this incredibly important and high task that we don't have to do it alone. That everything that we have uh, can come from you. And so God, I just ask that uh, each of us this week as we go about our lives, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we uh, go to the grocery store, wherever we are, Lord, that we would be mindful of our, our high calling to be preaching the life-giving, transformative message that you've called us to preach. That we wouldn't try to do that on our own, that we would rely upon you for our energy and our strength throughout the week, and that we would live in light of our identity in you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel, thank you for the cross, and thank you for this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.